You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. Here we go with episode 68, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. So I've been working on reciting and painting my garage all week, and it feels good to scrub the paint from my hands and stop for a minute and uh, strap into the podcasting chair and talk to you all for a bit. So episode 68 happens to be another installment of Herp Science Sunday with my pal, Dr. Alex Crone. And it features Cohen Hurd, a doctoral candidate from the University of Queensland in Brisbane. That's right, Australia continues its strong representation on So Much Pingle. But before we get to the episode, I want to give a shout out to the show's newest Patreoners, Wes Redridge and Lawrence Erickson. Thank you so much, Wes and Lawrence, uh, from Arizona and California, respectively. And as always, a big thank you to all of the show's supporters. You know, there are are costs associated with running any entertainment channel, and I am grateful to all of you for keeping this little boat afloat. Uh, And if you're out there listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, it's pretty easy to do, and you can support the show for as little as three bucks a month. And you can do that via Patreon. You can just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle, and so much pingle is all one word. And You can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal or Venmo, and you can just drop me an email to somuchpingle at gmail.com for more details on that. So this episode came about because Alex saw a tweet from Cohen Hurd about a paper that he co-authored concerning a certain species of pobblebunk, in this case, the northern banjo frog, Limnodynastes terrorigini. I love that name, Pobblebonk. Uh, and there are more than one species of frogs under the Pobblebonk umbrella. Uh, so anyway, Alex pings me right away about this paper uh, as a great candidate for Herb Science Sunday. And Cohen was keen to come on the show. Uh, so here we are. Uh, so I will have appropriate links to the paper in the show notes. And as always, you can drop me a note and I will send you a PDF copy of the paper. Also, uh, the teaser... At the beginning of the show is a short clip of some Pobble Box calling, and the clip comes from some recordings that uh, I purchased from a company called Wild Ambience. A long story short, I got 45 minutes of Pobble Bunks and Cool Birds and uh, other nature sounds for about 8 bucks US. So this is an unsolicited and yet much-deserved plug from me. Check out wildambience.com and maybe you'll hear something you like. Now let's get to this episode of Herp Science Sunday. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Herp Science Sunday. And once, as always, Dr. Alex Crone is with us. Hi, Alex. Hello. Good to be here. It's good to have you. Good to see your face again. Uh, and also coming all the way from Australia to join us is Cohen Hurd. Welcome to the show. G'day. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, I mean, Alex just sort of like jumped on you when he when he saw your 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 tweet he's like yeah we got to get this on we got to talk about this work on 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 the show this paper so so before we uh, go any further I want before I mention the name of the paper well, let's let's talk about you a little bit and get a little background on you uh, uh you see your, your academic background where you where you're at that kind of thing yeah so um I'm kind of at the pointy end of my PhD at the moment um working on frogs and UV sort of climate change stuff on physiology uh, in tadpoles in particular. But this kind of work came out of my honours project. So that was back in, in 2019. So I'm sure that the notes that you guys have taken on it, maybe you're probably more across it than I am <laughs> at the moment. But <laughs> no, I, I, um, I did my undergrad in, in Brisbane and kind of didn't do so well in undergrad, and but I got this opportunity to do that honors work, and I kind of jumped on it, and yeah, went from there. Okay, so you and you are at the uh, let me see, um, you're at the School of Biological Sciences, University of Queensland. Yeah, is that correct? that's right. Yeah, in Brisbane. Yeah. Right. Okay. 
And have you grown up around Brisbane or are you from a different part of Australia? No, what? I've grown up all, all around the place. Hey, yeah, like um, grew up in Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, moved to Tasmania, um, up in Gympie in Queensland and, yeah, all over the place. <laughs> wow. Cool. And what what brought you to – so we're going to talk about a paper on ecophysiology and you said you study UV radiation and climate change. What kind of brought you – to that area of study? Was it kind of the herps that got you there or the, the study animals that got you there? Or were it, was it more like the chemistry and the biology and, and the science that got you there? What How'd you get interested in all this? Yeah, I think it was a, a combination of those things and a little bit of opportunity in there as well. Um, I always love wildlife, but I think through university, I developed a, a particular interest in, in herps. Um, we were lucky enough at our university to have a herpetological society. Um, cool. It was quite small, but I joined it and not really knowing what to expect. Like a lot of the members who join it, they just say, cool, animals, this looks interesting. And then we'd go out looking for snakes and frogs and whatnot, and you just build that love from there, that experience. And then when the kind of end of undergrad's coming around, you're thinking, well, what the hell do I do now? Do I want to pursue something further along with university? you start looking at all the projects that people are offering and yeah, there was a couple of people looking at herps and that kind of stood out to me and yeah, the opportunities arise and you could have ended up studying a million different things, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad it was herps. Cool. Nice. We're all familiar with this pathway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I've lo- I love that you're taking it to a, a pretty high level. So, um, I'm going to start with the name of the this is a, this is a, a research article or a pub, a paper published in uh let's see the Journal of Experimental Biology and it was published this year in June I think maybe even uh and the the title of of the paper is the role of environmental calcium in the extreme acid tolerance of northern banjo frog larvae and the the, uh, the the three co-authors are are you Cohen Hurd, uh, Craig E Franklin, and Rebecca L Cramp. Rebecca L Cramp. Sorry, I went away from the microphone for a minute. Um, and so, uh, sounds like truck traffic. <laughs> um, uh, I hear a bird too. That sounds pretty. Is that me? Cockatoo. I think that might be me. That's typical. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Typical noises yeah. out here. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. No, no problem at all. Uh, so that's the name of the paper, and uh, I'm going to let Alex kind of take the, the, the lead on this because he's put up, worked up a bunch of really good questions about this. And uh, um, go ahead, Maestro. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I could let Cohen describe the the paper in more detail, but basically, there are crazy tadpoles that live in very acidic water and you were looking at the factors that allowed them to survive in such acidic water um yeah would would you like to take it from there cohen yeah give us like the the 30,000 foot view on uh what what is a, a reasonably complex biochemistry paper but with some really cool implications i think yeah yeah, so a lot of that this work kind of stemmed out of Craig Franklin's lab, um, one of the co-authors, and um, Rebecca Cramp, uh, her husband, uh, Ed Meyer, back in 2004, did his PhD thesis on these uh, frogs. And it's been a kind of, you know, ever since people first learned that these frogs are living in acidic waters, it's just phenomenal. It just constantly blows us away how they can do it. I think it's important to point out that nobody still really knows exactly how they can do it. Um, it's pretty remarkable. But they found that these frogs could, are capable of surviving in, you know, acidic waters within the range of stomach acid, which is just unbelievable. Um, wow. Yeah, so th- those... Okay, those c- I, w- I was going to ask... How acid are we talking here? But I now you, you just painted a, a vivid picture for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I remember somebody who read the work said, well, how do we know that they're not living in our stomachs? 
if that <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty it's mind blowing um and it reminds you of the i don't know if you know about the gastric brooding frogs over here they've gone extinct unfortunately probably due to chytrid fungus but yeah that they, they yeah. famously would raise their tadpoles in their stomachs and we'll, we'll never know but but maybe they they were similar in that in that sense as well um it's important to, to probably say there's a whole bunch of acid frogs so they're termed that live in these naturally occurring acidic environments um pobble bonks or the banjo frogs they just happen to be probably the most tolerant of those acidic waters and certain populations so let's back out for a second um so when you say these um acidic environments are you talking about the wallum region and am i even saying that right the wallum region in australia the Wallum, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that area, kind of where it is in Australia and um, why it has such acidic freshwater environments? Yeah, so it's this really unique, um, small and, and actually quite endangered uh, habitat along the eastern coastlines of like southeast Queensland within Australia mm-hmm. and northern a little bit in northern New South Wales. Um, and along... It's even on a lot of the, the sand islands that occur along the coastline. Um, it's Yeah, it's a lot of like heath vegetation and really those acidic um, waters are sort of these freshwater pockets or plugs and they, they come up, um, but they're filled through full of this organic matter from the vegetation around there. And a lot of the tannins from that vegetation, uh, particularly things like melaleuca trees, um, leach into the water and protonate it. And especially after there's been periods of extended drought, those water holes get incredibly acidic. Right. So it's strictly from a concentration of tannins, this, this acidic environment? I think that's the, the major contribute, contributor, yeah. And it's pretty, as you were saying, I was looking up a little bit about uh, the Wallum region and it's pretty astounding. They're actually endemic frogs that are endemic to this area. It doesn't seem like a particularly nice place for a frog to live, but obviously the banjo frog is doing just fine there. And there are even some frogs that live nowhere else uh, than, than the wallum with, even with all of its very acidic water. That, that's pretty astounding. Yeah. And, and I think you, you got to think if you're a frog and you can live in those kind of waters, there's not much else that's going to really want to compete with you or is able to compete with you. So it creates this little niche. Um, and I think that's what drives that kind of species endemism to those acid waters. There are other organisms, other water-breathing organisms that live in those um, waters too, like crayfish, and we still don't know anything about them and how they survive in those waters too. Wow. I'm going to guess that that the Wallum, the Wallum area is this – People uh, like you and other other people in Australia, ecologists and whatnot, and biochemists or whatever, are looking at this as a living laboratory. And there's so much to study there in terms of what organisms uh, live there and how they've adapted to that, uh, you know, stomach acid environment. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I was talking to a colleague um, just the other day. There's a university on the Sunshine Coast up there, right, basically on the in the Wallum. We're saying that there's just a paucity of research from the organisms there. It's it's quite astonishing. You'd expect there there'd be a lot more interest. Um, but yeah, I think we're we're talking about how to bring you know bring some of that back to the laboratory now because it's just yeah, it's a, like you say, it's a treasure trove of sort of if you're into ecophysiology, and it kind of it's kind of really pertinent to start looking at that. Now, because that ecosystem's under massive threats from land clearing and development, that Sunshine Coast area, you know, it's just exploding with development. Yeah, yeah, wow. So, tell us more about um, the pobblebunk or the the banjo frog. Do you do you prefer one or the other? Do people like mostly call them pobblebunks, but other people call them banjo frogs? Or tell us tell us for listeners who aren't familiar with it. Tell us more about um, the frog. Yeah, so the frog comes from a, a genus of a whole bunch of banjo frogs and pobblebonks that live across the continent. Um, 
I think Pobblebonk sticks because it's just such a classic name. Like so many people, when I put this research up on Twitter, you know, people just react to the Pobblebonk. They don't really care about the science. <laughs> it's like, look at this frog. Um, it's a great yes, name and a great <laughs> Exactly. They're, and they're such a charismatic thing. You know, I'm thinking about changing my last name to Popplebonk. I mean, what have I got to lose? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's up there with Padlopper as like top, top best uh, common names for any herp in the world, I think. Well, you, yeah. yeah, you want to know something. I reckon it could be a contender for best scientific name as well. It's a Limnodynasties yeah. Terrorigenae. I think it means king of the swamp, queen of the land. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Wait a minute. Cool. <laughs> I oh, no. Lord. Together. Lord of the swamp. Queen of the land. Right. Yeah. Limnodynasties is, is Lord of the swamp and Terra Regini. Queen of the land. Queen of the land. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> dude, <laughs> dude, man, you just, you just blew my mind. <laughs> and these things are called banjo frogs for a reason. They sound like a chorus of banjos. Just plucking one note. But I tell you what, I've had the privilege of hearing these guys in full chorus and across a range of habitats, and God, it's like so funny. It's kind of like <laughs> bonk, 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 bonk. <laughs> yeah, Alex sent me a link with a, with some sound files for, for Pobble Bonks, and uh, uh, it, he sent me a link from a place called Wild Ambience, and I ended up I ended up buying forty five minutes of Pobble Bonk. <laughs> um, Cost me all of eight bucks. Um, very, very I can't therapeutic. Wait to, to listen to that. Yeah, it's just awesome. It's one of the most awesome frog calls. Well, you've had Josie yeah. Rowley on the show. If, if you want, hit her up. I'm sure she could send you days and days of Pobblebonk calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the northern banjo frog, or um, king of the swamp, queen of the land, however you want to refer to it. Uh, it's actually found, it's not just found in the Wallum, right? It, it goes all the way up into northern Queensland. Is is that true? That's true. It's kind of interesting because it has, yeah, really, really wide distribution and only a relatively small area of its distribution covers those acidic environments. And then you've got a whole suite of acidic acid frogs that are endemic to that Wallum, yet for some reason, this Pobblebonk seems to have a higher acid tolerance than all of those acid frogs, but only in those populations. Where in People have looked at some of the populations away from those acid environments, and while they are quite acid tolerant, not quite as extreme as the ones, say there's a population around Bribey Island in the Wallum that have been found to survive, well, not only survive, but also reproduce in water as low as pH 3. Jeez. Wow. Three. Wow. Yeah. And I was just about to ask about that. Like, if, so if you're saying if you brought a frog from the top end all the way down to the wallum, they probably wouldn't thrive. They wouldn't um, be able to survive in, in that um, acidic water. That's right. And yeah, right. it's kind of, it's, it's like a, a genetic thing, but also plays into the evolution of phenotypic plasticity because you could take a, a wallum frog raised in a non-acidic environment, put it back into an acidic environment, and it would probably die as well. So there's this really important wow. acclimation period. That's that's really cool. Mike and I were um, musing, I guess you would say, about um, what epigenetics would uh, – the role of epigenetics in this whole um, scenario, and, and we'll get into that. Because we we still have to go through the experiments that you did, um, but but yeah, it seems like there's a lot of really cool natural experiments essentially uh, yeah. that could be done on on how acid tolerance evolves in all these different frog species. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I maybe that's just a good segue to to get into the the meat of this paper. Um, you did a series of experiments to test the role of that calcium plays in being able to survive in low pH and really acidic environments. Um, can, you, can you tell us about them and uh, about what you did and um, why you honed in on calcium? 
Yeah, so it, it came out of a series of discussions with um, the research fellow in, in Franklin Lab, Dr. Rebecca Cramp. I had a third-year ecophysiology course, and she was um, coordinating the pracs. And because her and her husband have done a little bit of work, you know, on these frogs and there's still some ongoing research that they're doing, I just started talking. And obviously, it's fascinating how they survive. But what I started noticing and realizing is that looking at the literature, calcium seemed to be this really important iron that underpins acid tolerance. But I had a big question because in those wallum ecosystems, the water is incredibly soft. So it's incredibly low in ions like calcium. Um, and I started thinking, do they get that calcium that they need for acid tolerance from their diet? Or is there something else going on, Some maybe some kind of adaptation? And that was kind of the, the trigger that started me to, to see, well, how do they survive in waters that are incredibly soft and acidic? Because it's an extra wow. challenge. I, I totally missed that in the paper. I had assumed that calcium, that these were relatively calcium rich areas. And so in your experiments, you essentially modulate the amount of calcium that the frogs are exposed to, or sorry, that the tadpoles are exposed to, yeah. um, to see if that either helps or hinders their ability to survive in low pH area, low pH water. Um, did you, what, what is your thought on where this calcium is, if calcium is so important in regulating uh, or surviving in low pH water, where, where does it come from? Do, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, so uh, this phenomenon of that protective effect of calcium in the water, um, that's been established in acid tolerant fish that live in the black waters of the Rio Negro. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of the, I think, some of the first literature that started to explore the physiology of acid tolerance. Um, and a lot of that research was driven after that sort of climate change was creating acid rains. Um, people started getting a lot more funding to start to look into that sort of research. Um, Interesting. But, yeah, a lot of that literature would talk about how calcium this, the higher the amount of calcium in the water, the less of a problem acid is for the fish. Um, and the reason it is a problem is because it causes the junctions between cells in the epithelia, particularly in the gills, to get looser. And you get this increase in the passive efflux of sodium from a high concentration inside the organism to a low concentration in freshwater out of the organism, this passive efflux. And once that animal loses like around something like 50% of its blood sodium, it's dead. So that's kind huh. of the mechanism of mortality uh, in acid, acidic waters for these animals. But back to the calcium, a lot of those studies kind of talked about how, oh, they, they think calcium must compete at the gill membrane with protons and maybe reduce the effect of the protonation on the epithelium to lift it. And I just didn't see any evidence in the literature that supported that idea. So it was kind of like this floating hypothesis. Um, what I noticed was that when you take a look at some kind of different literature away from the acidophilic animals and into um, sort of in vitro stuff, there's a, a couple of whole animal studies, you start to build this picture of calcium's actually super critical to junction stability inside the cells. It functions by um, forming the adherence junction, which sits underneath the tight junction, which is right at the top, right at that apical membrane um, in the epithelium that basically acts as the interface between the animal and the environment. And that adherence junction, which is filled full of calcium, calcium's like its sort of structural bones. Um, if that is interfered with, the tight junction is stuffed around. So that's kind of the thinking that started getting me to think, well, look, if I've got one honours project and I want to try to explore these ideas in some way, what are the kind of experiments that I might start to put together to maybe get some kind of idea to see if I'm not barking up the wrong tree, you know? Right, right. And so, I mean, 
I, we don't have to go into all the details of, of all the various experiments, but, but you did a few experiments in this honors project, which is pretty impressive, essentially exposing, um, exposing frogs that are naive to low acid environments and increasing their amount of calcium to see if that helped them adapt to those low, sorry, I think I said low calcium. I meant low pH environments and then adding calcium to see if that helps them uh, better survive in those low pH environments. And then kind of the opposite of that. And then you also looked at the gene expression of those frogs um, when exposed to these low sodium environments. Did I did I get that right from kind of a, a, a wider, widest view? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Um, so, yeah, there was this element of, I guess, acute exposure to acidic water and modifying the amount of calcium that's around the animal during that exposure, but then trying that same thing with um, chronically reared animals, animals that have lived in acid for a while. Um, and then, yeah, the gene expression element, kind of like I was saying, trying to figure out whether there's this um, intracellular or transcellular network of calcium proteins um, that might be being influenced in this system. But another experiment was um, to kind of have the animals with this um, protein inhibitor, ruthenium red, uh, which blocks the apical calcium channels and see if that is a problem for the animals. If they can't get calcium in during this acute pH, low pH exposure, what happens? Right. And so so your experiments basically showed that calcium, if, if you're naive to a low pH uh, environment, calcium can help you acclimatize and, and do better in that low pH environment. And Conversely, if you block calcium from being absorbed, you do worse in uh, that low pH environment. Did, yeah, is that right? That's a, that's exactly right, and probably a key a key thing to remember in this is that in most acid naive or let's no let's say acid sensitive animals. The exposure of their, say, gills to acid actually inhibits their calcium uptake proteins. So they huh. cannot take up calcium because acid prevents them from doing so. And one of the neat huh. findings, I think, of these experiments was that the acclimation of these tadpoles to acid, I still saw an uptake, a net uptake of calcium into the animal which shows that, well, in these frogs, they can take it up. They can still take up calcium at low pH, unlike all of the acid-sensitive animals. And so you think that that's something kind of unique to the northern banjo frog? Or do you think with a slow enough acclimation period, even the acidophiles, as you call them, um, would be able to take up, like kind of any acidophile would be able to take up some calcium? I think that they have to because if they're living at low pH and low pH is inhibiting all of their uptake proteins, how do they maintain ionic homeostasis? Yeah, I totally think that, that that's the key. It's some kind of acclimation mechanism or simply um, genetic differences in the makeup of their proteins to make them less sensitive um, to acidic environments. Right. So go ahead, Mike. I've been I've been taking up a lot of air. You're no, no, no. I've I'm just been listening and running all this through my brain. Uh, so you you talk about uh, what we uh, soluble cal calcium in the environment, which would be the water because they're tadpoles. Yeah, uh, tadpoles in the water. Uh, the most sensitive part of the tadpole to all this is obviously the gills. Uh, that's where a lot of things are happening. A lot of a lot of uh, exposed epithelial cells. That's there right. Are lots of things happening in the gill and the. In the gills, so um, so there's environmental calcium, I guess you would call it. But what about what the you know what you would call blood calcium? I mean, because most calcium in organisms, or at least what I've learned, is is concentrated in, in the actual blood itself. So, like blood sodium, 
So is there is there something going on with the calcium in in the animal too? Is that is there an interplay there? And, and does that help with uh, with some of this um, resistance to uh, acid coming from inside the animal itself, or is it all environmental calcium? Yeah, it's it's a great question because that's kind of that's kind of the big question. I guess the next question is to figure out well what if calcium is important at that junctional complex, how is it getting there from within the animal? Um, uh-huh. My kind of idea, among others, is that it takes that well, it can take that transcellular route, so in through the epithelium and then directly to the junction because that's a very fast route. It can definitely get there from the blood as well. Um, and from what I was reading, that they a lot of animals will maintain a very kind of strict calcium concentration within the blood. So if they did need to mobilize calcium from um, stores within the body, to the junctional complex, they'd have to replenish it um, very quickly. How do they do so? To maintain ionic homeostasis, they'd either need to mobilize stores of calcium or increase the uptake uh, from the environment. So it's it's definitely a possibility. Um, it's, yeah, I guess one of the next steps, and it'd be kind of neat to use intracellular calcium markers to just actually track where, how much calcium is moving to that junction or if it is even going to the junction. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good and question. And I guess when I talk about environmental calcium too, we're, we're not just talking about the calcium uh, within the the medium water itself, but also perhaps in their diet, their uh, the tadpole's diet, there's some calcium uptake as well. That's, that's exactly right. No, yeah, that's exactly right. So what are these tadpoles eating uh, in these ponds? Is it... Is it, are they uh, carnivorous? Are they mostly herbivorous? Do they just kind of eat whatever detritus falls to the bottom of the pond? Yeah, they're de- detritus eaters, um, but also a bit omnivorous too. Like they don't fall neatly into a box. Like I've seen them eat each other quite readily. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, I think obviously there must be enough calcium in their diet um, to form their bones and, and perform basic um physiological services but the that's the the kind of question is during an acute ph shock um they're sort of have a need to mobilize that calcium and stabilize a junction um will they be taking it up straight away from the environment or how do they get it from the environment because that's the thing is that obviously they might not need calcium from their environment if they can get enough through their diet um they might not need to take it up but some of our work showed that they do uptake it after acid acclimation, and that stands to reason, well, there must be a reason that they're doing that. In almost all systems, it's to maintain ionic homeostasis, which which tells you that calcium is being used in some other process. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So we have um, – I'm thinking about the you know life cycle of the amphibian, and everybody's got this little chart in their head from when they were in school. <laughs> From the egg to the tadpole to the adult frog, you know, and, and I'm thinking, you know, the eggs are laid, but the eggs are probably at, at the time the eggs are laid, they're probably protected by the, you know, their little uh, little eggy envelope uh, from the effects of the acids. It's after they leave the, or they, they come out of the egg, they emerge as a little tiny tadpole uh, that they mm. become, uh, I guess, fully exposed to this acidic environment. Is, is that safe to say? Yeah. Um- the, the interesting thing about banjo frogs or pobblebonks is that whole gene, most of that genus actually, Limnodynastes, they lay foam nests uh, that float on the water's surface. Um, and I'd like to say it's because of the acidic environment, but the, uh, there's other acid frogs that don't do that. So we're yet to kind of know what's going on, how those eggs are protected. It, it probably is that jelly layer. And there's a lot you can say about the mucous membrane on the tadpoles protecting against protonation as well. Um, but at mm. least in the case of the pobblebonks, yeah, I'd say most of the eggs would not be exposed to the acid until they hatch. And we don't really know whether the eggs on the sort of bottom of that floating mass are different to the eggs that are above the water because some of those eggs do come into contact with the acidic water and it'd be really interesting to know um, whether or not they 
do as well. Maybe they are impacted. Because it has really to be trade-offs with this stuff, hey? One question leads to another. Yeah. And just in case our listeners are not um, aware, the frogs in the genus Limnodynastes, the males as well as females, but I know specifically the males will use their arms to to kind of whip up these foam nets yeah. that yes. that the eggs are laid into that basically kind of cocoons the eggs. Kind of if you know like Raccophorus, there are other foam nesting foam nest building frogs. Um, but then the the males will also bring down oxygen bubbles from the surface to to add into these foam nests as well, which I just thought was like just really cool and not something that our frogs in the United States really do or that I've heard of them doing. That's that's cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of quite common limnodynastids that like you can just be driving around the streets and after big rains, the gutters are full of water and full of floating foam nests. And it's people, wow. like, what are all of they? And like, That's frogs. <laughs> <laughs> you can see them from your car, some of them. They're massive. Cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember traveling in Southeast Asia and just at the tail end of the rainy season, seeing leaves hanging over ponds with like old dried foam that obviously all the eggs had hatched had fallen into this pond. And that was all that was left were these like really cool racophorid foam nests. And yeah, it's a cool strategy. <laughs> yeah. Same here. Uh, I saw some of those in Malaysia. In oh, cool. Nice. Very interesting. Um, okay. And so the, the paper deals with uh, the ability, the, the role of, you know, calcium with, with tadpoles, but, I'm going to stray to the side here for a minute. What about the adults? I mean, are they, are they, do, do they have a, obviously the adults have to get in the water uh, here and there. Uh, do they have some sort of resistance or, or modifications to this, um, this pH or what's going on with the adults? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't think it's been sort of formally looked at, but they're a terrestrial, you know, sort of have a really terrestrial lifestyle and they burrow underground for long, long periods of time. And, yeah, they will only come back to the water to lay most of the time. You can have a drink. But they're not in the water for too long. And I wonder if the acute shock in the acid would be such an issue for them just coming in for sort of a short time. Yeah, it would be really interesting to track them after they hop back into these acidic waters. Um, a lot of the time after those rains, it does dilute the water, so it might not be as acidic. Um, which is another interesting idea. But certainly in, in some cases, they would be hopping into quite acidic water and they're nowhere near as tolerant as the tadpoles. So, no, that's a good question. Okay. It's definitely definitely something that would be interesting to track, I reckon, um, the an adult's physiology after ovipositing. It would make sense that a lot of the, the kind of messing up of the gas exchange that occurs in the tadpole gills would probably also happen in the adult frog's skin, um, maybe they can get around it by obviously breathing with lungs. But um, mm. yeah, I, I wonder, maybe there's some mucous membrane or like you say, they just don't deal with it as much because they only go into the, the puddles or ponds um, after the rains. But yeah, I, I wonder that too. It's a good question. Yeah, the, the tadpoles will stay in those waters for months and months. Um, and they're, they're quite a slow developing Frog, like we've kept some some individuals in the lab will just, it seems like they will never metamorphose. <laughs> I have a, wow. a mesocosm experiment running on a, the roof at the moment in the university and I just had one over winter that I, I missed when I cleaned up the mesocosms and it's this, you know, giant um, tadpole that that just seems to overwinter. So they've got to spend a long time in that acid, whereas, yeah, the adults maybe a night or two. Um, and they could probably wow. leave if if it gets a bit too much. I'm not sure what they do. I've been out in those waters surveying them, and I think, yeah, they must experience some acute shock through the, the skin. Um, but, yeah, like you said, it's really in the gills for the tadpoles where that, that exchange, iron exchange is occurring. But, yeah. It made me think of the kind of, explosive desert uh, breeding frogs that we have 
here in the southwestern United States are spadefoot toads, which also in similarly, but not in exactly the same way, breed in increasingly acidic and increasingly um, full of competitor uh, water as as the desert pools dry up in the heat. Yeah. Um, and conversely, unlike um, the Hubble bunks, they will metamorphose a lot quicker to get out of that environment uh, before it dries. And so that makes me think that maybe they're just avoiding that increasingly acidic uh, environment by metamorphosing quickly. And maybe it's not possible for banjo frogs or, um, or yeah, or this adaptation came first, so they don't have to metamorphose quickly. Yeah, we we have very similar frogs here as well. A range of um of ephemeral breeders, particularly the desert, our desert burrowing frogs. Um, right. And yeah, I mean that that kind of that kind of drying pool getting hotter and hotter, and so development can occur faster and faster. Um, nutrient limiting, it does benefit the tadpole in an increasingly acidic environment, right? So it get, can get out of there faster. But yeah, if they're developmentally limited, if they can't grow fast enough, yeah, they're going to suffer death from acid. <laughs> uh, because right. they're in an acidic environment, so maybe their 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 food choices and the quantity and quality is is, is thinner. Yeah, that's right. Um, so they don't have any ability to, uh, unless they're snacking on each other, they don't have the ability to to beef up and and uh, quicken their metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Yeah, and and it's interesting to think because a lot of these animals, they they seem to have this um, that kind of size over quality um, method of breeding. But when you look at the systems, you you always get those big bullies that come out, you know, a lot better, and they secrete those hormones and chemicals to suppress the growth of the rest. But and I think sometimes. They are actually in certain environments will employ that kind of quality function so that they will have this one that will eat all the rest. Maybe in those harsh environments, that's where that kind of strategy plays off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that would make sense. So, so many questions. <laughs> um, at the end of your study, you found that there was a gene that could basically, that in frogs that were reared in these low pH environments, this gene was upregulated and uh, that that gene helped increase the amount of calcium that could be moved in uh, to kind of to fight against the, the low pH environment. Um, and so I thought that was a cool, uh, what do you call it, like cherry on top as a kind of mechanism for how this calcium, how calcium was really saving the day for these frogs. Um, this is total speculation here. Um, I don't expect you to know the answer, but do you think that this might be a common method in acid-dwelling frogs? In, in Sorry, in tadpoles that live in low pH environments, do you think they might be using this same gene or the same pathway over and over again? Or do you think that this is kind of specific to just pobble bunks or just uh, the weird low uh, low pH environments of the Walloon? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I, w- I would say that it's pretty much the only system, that transcellular calcium uptake system. It's a network of proteins um, that facilitate calcium going in and then calcium being shuttled to the base lateral bottom membrane and then extruded into the animal um, there's no really other way that the calcium can get from the environment into the animal. And so unless there's modifications um, to the calcium stores and calcium mobilization, uh, I would say, yeah, I would expect that mechanism or modifications of different aspects of that mechanism to be convergent across acidophilic animals that need to continue to uptake calcium from the environment in acidic waters. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to take this down to my level for a minute. <laughs> we're, we're talking about a, a gene that gets expressed that helps uh, ramp up the, this calcium exchange by producing a, a, a binding protein. That is 
that is not a heritable genetic trait we're talking. We're talking about a gene, some gene switching on or some gene being expressed that might not otherwise be expressed. So we're talking about epigenetics here, correct? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not very familiar with the field of epigenetics and because I understand it as modifications to like chromatin and stuff like that and maybe being one mechanism that can regulate, you know, um, gene expression. But I think that there are there are other mechanisms that can regulate gene expression too, like um, signal transduction. And but yeah, maybe you've got more experience here, Alex. The way that I was thinking about it was that that gene regulation pathway is likely it, that regulatory element that that gene is almost certainly passed from parent to offspring, um, the amount that it is upregulated kind of depends on the environment. And if there, yeah. if the environment can somehow modify that gene, and then that modification is passed down to the, the offspring, then that would be an epigenetic uh, effect. Like the environment changes the gene somehow, and somehow that change gets passed down to the uh, the offspring. And that very well may be happening. It's possible that that's how acidic frogs or acid-tolerant frogs give birth to acid-tolerant tadpoles. Um, it's possible that that's not at all how it's happening. Um, but I don't, I don't think we know whether it is an epigenetic effect or just an artifact of this this regulatory element. But yeah, Mike, I think on the, the topic of heritability, the cool thing about these acidic environments is that they're, they're this sort of like, you know, the thermal hot spring. There's such an extreme selective pressure that these are the places where you can sort of really see natural selection working. Um, you've got that extreme selective pressure. Like, I noticed on a road that goes through the Wallum, it's slanted and all of the fresh water from the rain that hits it runs off into one of these ponds. So on the left, you've got a really freshwater pond and on the right, you've got the really acidic one. It's actually kind of diverting hmm. a lot of that rainwater. And when you walk along it after big rains, all the pobble bonks are calling, all the acid frogs are calling on the right. On the left, cane toads. So you can see that that kind of... Um, those adaptations can really lead to this niche kind of specialization um, where you don't have to compete with things that otherwise might compete you in it. Yeah, I think it wow. will naturally lead to maybe the expression of slightly more and more pH, um, less pH sensitive, maybe isoforms or types of proteins because tiny little modulate like modifications of nucleotides in those genes is all it takes to create you know, slightly different conformational proteins that are, are less sensitive to acid or temperature and you know things like that. That that is cool. Okay. Yeah, I and I had really you know there's the the, the acid issue kind of takes the center stage away from selection. In other words, you, you know it's it's not it's not just a making the frog's life difficult. It's also presenting them with opportunities. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I really didn't think of it from that standpoint. It's like, well, yeah, this is, it's tough, but it's a tough, it's, you know, it's like living in my stomach, but at the same time, <laughs> no one else can live there. the cane toads aren't, aren't, aren't <laughs> going to go there. So yay, you know, we win. That's right. So, and in those, wallum, yeah. those endemic acid frogs, you know, you get rid of the wallum, you get rid of the frogs. They can't live anywhere else. They're just so quickly outcompeted yeah. by everything around them. Hmm. Yeah, that that makes for a very very interesting and hot spot of in, of endemism right there. Absolutely. Cool. Well, you heard it here first, Mike. Uh, Cohen is gonna bet that every low acid or sorry low pH dwelling tadpole that we test will have the same gene upregulated uh, to solve <laughs> the problem with calcium. And we'll check back in five to twenty years after. <laughs> He's tested all the other frogs. Yeah, well, I really want to look at those crayfish because the, what's going on there? And they've got that sort of exoskeleton. It makes me wonder how that goes in acid too. There's just so much stuff in these environments that 
blows you away. Like it's kind of an the ecophysiologist dream, you know. Like how do these animals live in such extreme conditions? Yeah, that's very cool. Like like you said, the thermal vents, but here on the surface of the earth. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's just too many examples, you know, of animals that seemingly defy everything we think we know about physiology. <laughs> yeah, cool. How big? How much of an area does the is the is the wallum? How uh, in terms of kilometers is it? Is it a really oh. big place? Is it a scattered along the coast? Is is it pockets of habitat like that? Yeah. Look, what what is that? Honestly, I'm not sure. Um, there'd be a good report that'd tell me, but. It's definitely scattered now, particularly because of habitat fragmentation, really scattered pockets. But I would love to know, and I haven't looked much into the biogeographic history of the Wallum ecosystems. I'd love to understand how old they are because they're all along the coastlines and those are depositional beaches, these kind of golden sands that are swept out from the mountains um, inland and pushed back against the shore and it just builds these beaches and the heath vegetation and the wallum are kind of these more, often more low nutrient environments um, that's sitting behind the dunes or behind that um, productive where the you know the sands are either um, stripped of all their nutrients or they they still have a lot of inaccessible, or not available nutrients. Um, yeah, it'd be really cool to know sort of where these acid frogs evolved from, what kind of conditions. Uh, it would like, or were these acid environments more widespread once upon a time? And you say there are species endemic to the wallum. Um, what what kind of frogs are we are we talking about there? Yeah, there's these ones are crinia wallum froglets, um, and a lot of the tree frogs like Latoria cululensis or the Kalula sedge frog, um, Latoria fraysonetti. There's a whole range of them. Um, they're a lot smaller than the pobble bonk. And some would say a lot cuter. I would maybe beg to differ. <laughs> the pobble bonks quite charismatic, but yeah, yeah. Th- th- there's a, there's a range, and they're adorable frogs. And yeah, a lot of a lot of people, you know, a lot of froggers will say, "Well, I need to get out to the Wallum because that's where you you have to go and find all of those Wallum frogs. You just can't see them anywhere else." And some of those you mentioned are tree frogs, so they're somehow somehow managing in that environment. Um, but they had the same challenge with their tadpoles as well. That's right. Yep. And it, it, it would be interesting to look into the, the mechanisms. To, I think that's the, the prime candidates to see whether or not they have this, those same mechanisms. Cool. Um, this, is, this is fascinating. Um, it makes me want to – of course, I, I've been wanting to come to Australia for <laughs> a while. Uh, and I, I'm going to get there. Uh, but uh, it makes me want – it's like, well – I've, I've got to, I've got to see this place. Yeah, come down. I'll I've take, I'll take his out, take his <laughs> out to the populations. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. We'll, we'll go uh, check out the hobble bonk, billabongs in the wall. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bring mosquito repellent. All right. <laughs> okay. And you know what? Well, I have yeah. a, sus- I have a suspicion. I was looking at like some literature on the physicochemical properties of pitcher plants. There and there are tadpoles that live inside pitcher plants. Oh, I have, yeah, yeah. I have a suspicion that they are also acidophilic amphibians. I'd love to get a pH meter in some of those pitcher plants in Indonesia and parts of Southeast Asia to see. Oh, do we also have? You know, they're obligate, um, obligate pitcher plant breeders. So I wonder. Yeah, I yeah. wonder if they're the same. <laughs> Microhyla nepenthacola. You could, yeah, you could definitely do it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, <laughs> and we have pitcher plants in um, northern Australia as well. Um, in right. a lot of I that land wondering. is unsurveyed, unknown, so much unknown. There's acid swamps up there too, actually, in the Cape York. It's so hard to access that country, um, hmm. but maybe one day. You meant you dropped a name there, Alex. That was a my- microhyla nepenthacola. Yeah, exactly. It, it, Which nepenthe, nepenthe is uh, usually the genus for pitcher plants, or some genus, uh, one of the genus for pitcher plants. So it's a uh, cola. Uh, so it's an animal that lives in the pitcher plant. Yeah. Okay. Like Cohen was saying, it, wow. it is an obligate that breeds only in the the pitchers of the pitcher plant. And yeah, like he was saying, the 
the pitcher is basically secreting digestive juices to digest insects, yet somehow doesn't digest this frog that only breeds in the relatively well-protected uh, pitcher. We're right. We're we're back to the stomach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Again, really. Now we're in it's a, just a stomach. stomach. Yeah, <laughs> and but who knows? Maybe there are frog or sorry, pitcher dwelling frogs in far northern Australia that just haven't been discovered yet. Okay. Well, we will check back with you on that one, <laughs> 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 and we'll see what you turn up. Uh, uh, well. Alex, I'm I'm kind of here's what's going to happen after this is all over with. I'm going to sit back and and relax for a while, and eventually I'll go to bed, and I'll just lay there and start thinking about all of the uh, all of the things we talked about, and I'll stay up, you know, till one or two in the morning with my brain cranking (laughs) on all of this because it's it's fascinating to me. Because what I like about this is that you know we ask questions, you answer questions, and then there are more questions from those answers and, and it just keeps going on and on. It's the best part of this whole thing. But, uh, but did uh, Alex, you made some notes. Do you, is there another aspect of this that you're curious about? No, we, we covered the, the questions that I, that I came up with. And I agree with you. If, if we lay awake at night thinking about Pobble bunks and, and adaptations to acid environments, I think Herb Science Sunday did its job. And, <laughs> It was a success. <laughs> okay, very good. So, so you're still so here. You are uh, still cranking away on your PhD, uh, Cohen, and and um, and it sounds like you, whatever whatever life's taking you, it sounds like this. You've got more questions you want to answer about this. You, you're you're not like this isn't a one-off for you. You want to answer some more questions about the wallum and, and the animals and plants that live there. Oh yeah, that's right. Like it's, it's just that, you know, curiosity, it niggles away. <laughs> um, and it, it, it'll never stop. <laughs> Those ecosystems are so beautiful and such a special part of the country here that, you know, they'll always be on your mind at 1am, <laughs> but I'm glad they're not just on my mind now. It's good to, good to share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think about you know we have some we have frogs that live in bog. We have some of them are called bog frogs <laughs> here in the United States, and I I don't think they're quite in stomach acid type pH, uh, but I, they are fairly acidic, and I wonder if you know there are some differences there. You know, some of those creatures may well think about like the Florida bog frog and uh, you know other ones that you know maybe they're taking advantage of those low oxygen acidic environments, yeah. just like the pobble bunk because the the cane toads don't go there. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, that kind of evolution sees harsh environments as an opportunity a lot of the time. <laughs> totally, an opportunity yeah. to increase biodiversity. I think that's the kind of the cool thing. Yeah, indeed, indeed, and and you know I, this. Uh, by the end of this episode, uh, what I was thinking at the beginning is completely different. It's just amazing that you know <laughs> I made all these assumptions, and you know most of them were wrong. But that's that's cool. That's you know it's like oh man, I have I have learned so much in you know less than an hour's time. So yeah, I so I read done a good job. Yeah, I read that manuscript that I wrote again and. Every time I read it, I think about something in a different way. It's, it's such a complicated story, but it's just good to at least get a part of the story down, you know, so that it can make people think and, and marvel at these frogs in more detail. Okay. And, and so and you're, you're, you're in Craig Franklin's lab. Is it Craig Franklin's yeah, lab? Yeah, that's right. You're in? Okay. And, and so there's kind of – you have a little team there, people that are doing some work, and you expect that to continue with some other – Maybe some other publications out of this? Yeah, the, the grants kind of run out for the acid stuff now, but there are more publications that will be coming out from this. Um, that's right. But, yeah, there's definitely scope to start to increase that in the future. And I do think that universities like University of the Sunshine Coast position right on the wallum. Why do they not, not have researchers, animal physiologists? Yeah. I think it's a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're, you're – um 
I don't want to say starting something, but maybe you're adding to something that will, you know, continue to build. And so you can raise uh, interest in this area and, and maybe uh, maybe that'll be good for conservation efforts. Yeah, I hope so. Alex, do you have any more questions for our guests? That That's about it. Um, yeah, I, this was a cool study. I think it was, um, how do you say it? Like, it's kind of like a, a heady biochemical ecophysiology kind of study, but like I said, the implications are really cool to think about just how evolution works in these really harsh environments and getting down to the nitty gritty of how tadpoles survive in stomach acid, essentially. Like this, it was very cool. So thank you for publishing it. Thank you for, for doing this awesome work. Uh, thanks for reading. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a, been a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to know, um, when when you're not in the lab, are, are you are you out in the field? Do you like being out in the field, uh, chasing down frogs and other critters? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Do, you do much of that, or yeah, when I can, love to be out on on country here. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well connected to to country here. What's um does is there anything that uh, can you put one thing over another, like maybe snakes over frogs or something <laughs> like that, or. <laughs> uh. Because people always say, well, what's people always ask me what my favorite is, and I, I just say I like it all. I don't yeah, really. I'm the, I'm the exact same. I love plants just as much as animals. <laughs> oh, do you? Yeah, okay. microbes, whatever. It's just, you know, it's all incredible, eh? But frogs are just bloody cute. That's all I can say about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got 45 minutes of Pobble Bonk that I'm going to go listen to after, <laughs> after we're done here. So. Go pobble bonk yourself to sleep. Close your eyes and just imagine you're in the beautiful Wallum on the Sunshine Coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My feet burning off. Yeah. <laughs> well, Cohen, thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, I, I appreciate it. Uh, you were ex- you uh, responded right away and you're very excited and I appreciate that as well. And uh it always uh, makes me feel good to highlight somebody's uh, work when they're really enthusiastic about what they're doing. So, ah, awesome! And thank you, Alex, for bringing this uh, to my immediate attention. <laughs> as it were, so. of course. Yeah, this was really fun. You were excited as well, so that makes me feel good too. So. Definitely. All right. Okay. Thanks again, guys. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, it's me again. I want to thank Cohen Hurd for coming on the show and giving us some insights into his recent paper and the crazy situation uh, down at the Wallum and uh, the frogs who eke out a living there. Uh, It's fascinating stuff, and hopefully one day I can see it for myself. And once again, if you want a copy of the paper written by Hurd, Franklin, and Cramp, uh, just drop me an email and I will send you the PDF. And thanks, as always, to Dr. Alex Crone. And, and folks, if you like the Herp Science Sunday format, be sure to thank Alex, uh, as this was his brainchild. And you know what? I'm a big fan. I learned stuff. And thanks also to Ben Ravel for use of some great Pobblebonk photos. Appreciate that. And uh, now I really want to see some Pobblebonks. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. That's it for episode 68. I want to say thanks once again to Cohen Hurd and Dr. Alex Crone. And I also want to say thanks to Wes Redridge and Lawrence Erickson for supporting the show. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help to support uh, So Much Pingle, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. 